Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. I initially interviewed Amanda Householder on June 10th, 2020. During our conversation, she revealed that a staggering number of troubled teen homes existed across the United States. Despite purporting to assist at-risk youth, these facilities often functioned as unregulated prisons, particularly those with a faith-based orientation, enjoying even less oversight due to religious exemptions. Amanda detailed various forms of physical, sexual, and mental abuse encompassing forced starvation, force feedings, rape, molestation, beatings, and months of isolation. For Amanda, the fight against the troubled teen industry hits close to home, as she grew up in the Bible Belt, where her parents served as staff at the Agape Boarding School in Stockton, Missouri, before departing to establish their own unlicensed children's home called Circle of Hope. Less than a year from our initial conversation, Amanda's parents, Boyd and Stephanie Householder, were arrested. With 16 victims so far, we believe this to be one of the most widespread cases of sexual, physical, and mental abuse patterns against young girls and women in Missouri history. Consequently, Circle of Hope closed its doors. In January of 2023, Agape Boarding School shut down as well, following an extensive investigation and tons of media scrutiny. Additionally, in November of 2023, Amanda's story was featured in the four-part documentary series, Let Us Pray, which premiered on Investigation Discovery and is currently available to stream on Max. In today's conversation, we delve into Amanda's participation in the production of Let Us Pray, the current state of the troubled teen industry, and what the future holds for Amanda in her life and activism. Here's my conversation with Amanda Householder. Trigger Warning This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Amanda, welcome back for the third time, I think. I think so. Maybe fourth time, but thank you for having me. Yeah. However many times, it's always good to talk. and, um, And whether it's in person or virtual, I love getting to have conversations. And um Yeah, a lot has happened since last time we talked. Uh, A little documentary series came out, which uh, a lot of people have questions about. 
But um, I'm I'm curious first and foremost, like how are you and how's everything been with all of the newfound attention, all the new questions, all of the new um people being introduced to your story? Like, how's it been processing all that? As always, it's a little bit overwhelming, but um, the support in it is what helps me process it, I guess. Um, sure. But it's been good. Um, I've been MIA from like doing a lot of social media, but to see that people are still out there willing to reach out and say, hey, I saw your story and um, supporting what we're like our, our movement still. It's, um, it's very rewarding, uh, especially for how hard it is to like constantly like repeat your story um it, it's always rewarding to see people out there still supporting it it's something too i i know for me i told sharon the director like right after the second part premiered and i just said this feels very validating like that it's people because I, I i don't know if you feel this way but like within the circles of advocates and survivors and like the little groups of people they have conversations with you're all on the same page, but it can feel like, okay, well, we all get it, but it doesn't seem like anyone else gets it. And so to see people that are being introduced to it for the first time, or maybe didn't understand that are now saying, oh, I get it now. Like that's been super huge. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning. Like, how did you first get involved with this? Like how early on did they reach out to you to be part of Let Us Pray? Yeah, it was either mid 2020 or early 2020 after, um, we went to TikTok and our TikTok became um, pretty big. Yeah. Uh, she reached out and um, explained to me that she is uh, working on a documentary with these uh, huge, like strong women um, of the IFB movement or uh, the blind eye movement. And uh, she uh, spoke to me then, but we were currently worth trying to get our own documentary out on the TTI because the IFB is, um, one thing, but the, the TTI part of the IFB, it's, it's kind of hard to, um, they're not exactly the same. So, uh, she was trying to figure out how to, um, work them together. And, um, I wasn't quite sure. Cause like I was working on my own documentary as well, like I said. So, um, I think she hit me back up and I want to say 2021. Yeah. And so, um, at that time, um, I realized it was not impossible, but there was absolutely no way that I would be able to do a documentary. And I felt Sharon, um, I watched a couple of her documentaries after hitting, uh, after she hit us up and I felt like she did very well, especially yeah. for trauma survivors. And she is a super wonderful and like sweet lady. So I felt very comfortable. And, um, by that time, uh, I had looked into, uh, uh, the blind eye movement. And so, um, I was really like happy that she hit me back up. It sounds like we had a similar touch point there. Cause I know she reached out middle of the first year of doing the show. And like, obviously people know, and I've talked about it ad nauseum, but like my original goal was never to do a podcast. I was just going to go documentary route. That was mm -hmm. my background. And the podcast kind of put me in a weird position because the podcast blew up to a point where I was like, okay, well, this other thing is going to take a lot of time and money that COVID wiped away in a lot of ways early on. And then by the time things started opening up again, it was like, okay, how do I match what this is doing? And, and like my ability there versus what just through whatever you want to call it, that, that boosted the show. 
it was like, it didn't make sense. It was like, let's just double down on the podcasting side. Um, but it was really cool kind of talking with Sharon and going like, okay, the dream that I had is going to happen. And with somebody who happens to be an Emmy winning, like Oscar yeah. shortlisted director, you know, like not a bad situation. And I think she did, you know, your concerns like me in the beginning, when she reached out, I was like, are you going to handle this the right way? How are you going to cover such a broad thing? Originally, I think when they reached out, they just said they're doing a documentary. I was like, two hours and you're going to cover the troubled teen industry mm -hmm. and this and that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think they did a really good job connecting all of it. And from the troubled teen industry perspective, like I was surprised how much it got within that series to really like let it breathe and explain how widespread that is. Um, yeah, they did a good job. Yeah. How, how long did you film for it? I can't tell you. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I know. Um, I know I filmed in Kansas City and then Lake Elsinore and Michigan. So, okay. um, but I, I can't tell you how many hours or yeah. it didn't, I wasn't counting. For the shoot itself, I mean, obviously did the interview, but one of the things that um, they did was they visited Circle of Hope and actually toured the property, which I was, again, surprised that that happened. And I didn't know that happened till watching it live. Um, what was the experience of kind of going back to that place that obviously holds a lot of personal connection, personal trauma? Now in this position of, I get to really expose this in a very real way, like what emotions did you feel like kind of set the scene for being in that that spot again? So I honestly thought like before I even got out, me and Rosie were sitting in the van and I was like overthinking it and like overwhelmed because I thought I was going to have like super bad panic attacks. Yeah. Um, but actually like being able to walk in there in pants, which as a female in the IFB was not allowed. One was like super healing. Um, and then the other part was, um, walking through it there the person who owns it now um he's working on it but uh there were cigarette buds and uh beer and alcohol cans like laying around and i was just like oh the irony of what is <laughs> the beer cans and the cigarettes it wasn't it wasn't what it was like i mean it it was exactly the same as circle of hope was but the fact that there was something worldly in there made it less um overwhelming so like i didn't have a panic attack during the walkthrough i did uh it was hard uh revisiting like the wall and uh, other places that were very traumatizing and the girls being a, a like abused there the majority of the time um but just to see that that place that was once so evil and they didn't want any worldly influence right. in it had some happiness i know like i don't mean like having alcohol and cigarettes make you happy or whatever but it was yeah. not the controlling yeah it's not this yeah, rigid i don't know how to explain it right. other than right i was laughing i was like huh yeah. there's alcohol mom and dad <laughs> yeah no it's 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 that's something that Sharon said in our conversation uh, when I interviewed her recently. She said, like, the goal with so much of the series was to like reclaim some of these spaces. So, like, 
you're sitting in a church pew, this, this church office, like for you, you have one of the most stark examples of that. Like you're sitting in what looks like what's been described so many times of the get right room or, you know, all the different names that all these different homes have for it. And I think that is a really cool, empowering thing to see is like, these are places that were so rigid and so strict and so controlling. And now it's like, you get to be present in it and sharing your version of the story on a major platform for the very first time, at least at that scale for, I think all of us to go, okay, the world's going to actually see this. Well, and the fact that like their mattresses and things like were still there, it was literally like they up and left and just left it the same. And so um, to see it like that, but not, but also like in um, chaos, it was, it was, it was cool. Well, I'm I'm curious before we move on and talk about some other aspects, one of the things a ton of people I know have been messaging you about privately and have written about is the end of the series. It says, Hey, trial is set for November with the householders. And obviously that has not happened. So can you kind of explain to people what's going on with the trial itself and when the next steps are taking place? It was supposed to be the 27th, but they um, pushed it back to some, there's no set date, but anytime after September 30th, 2024. So I don't even know if anytime after 2024 of September. Um, But the reason why, um, if anyone is wanting to follow the, the case um, it's uh, you can follow it in MissouriCourt.net and just type in householder as last name Boyd or Stephanie as the first, it doesn't matter. But um, when you do that, you can see they uh, put in for a uh, writ prohibition. Um, and I Googled, and to me, what it seems like is um, they're trying to make it to where the prosecuting attorney and judge cannot um, request lesser charges than what the attorney general um, requests. Because um, a lot of corruption happens within that area. Um, it's absolutely a good thing they requested that. Um, so I know people are um, wanting it to happen now as much as I do, but it's it's for the best that we get that taken care of because um, if the, the judge let my parents off, <laughs> uh, their um, bond or bail was like 10 grand. So they only had to pay a grand to get out. So the judge and prosecuting attorney seemed to be uh, favoring my parents. And so the attorney general is like, that's not okay. And so he's trying everything in his power to help us and get justice. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. That's really great. And I'm glad he's still pursuing that so hard because, you know, it is, there's a reason a lot of these homes we've talked about in past episodes, there's a reason so many homes pick places like Missouri because they do tend to be hyper in favor of, you know, well, I don't want to say hyper in favor of religious freedom, but they go above and beyond in labeling a lot of things that are not okay to fall under religious freedom and expression, you know? So corporal punishment in these homes, like that sort of stuff gets a lot, a lot of a pass within these kind of systems. So yeah, I agree. Knowing that now, you know, cause when you hear anything gets moved, your instant reaction is always, of course it got moved and it's pushing it off. But to know that it's getting moved, but it means that whatever sentence there is can be a more severe sentence is a, is a positive thing. Um, I, I'm curious for you going through the series itself, you know, you filmed at three different places. You spent a lot of time with Ruthie, you spent time with entire groups. You were there for the sentencing that's there in episode four. For you personally, what was the most powerful thing for you through the process? Or is there a certain moment that sticks with you as like, I'm really proud that either they captured that or that even, you know, off camera, I got to meet somebody like what was kind of the highlight for you through the experience? I don't have like a highlight um, because I am like grateful that I got to meet Kathy, Ruthie and April and Rachel and Nanette. But um, I think the part when I like watched the series that I was like really proud that they did this was when um, Rachel called up her abuser and had him like admit it on phone. And I was just sitting there like, that was smart. Like, yeah. That is, I don't know, that I, I absolutely was so proud at that moment that that he actually was, he admitted it for one on the camera, but the fact that she was willing and like strong enough to do that as well, I was just like, yeah. hey. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of moments like that with everybody where, because I knew, I knew most everybody prior to filming. I think the only person in like main cast it was weird title for it but we're in the main group of people that were shown like the only person i really didn't know well was nanette like i talked to amanda virtually i talked to you know and i i kind of knew everyone i'd met a lot of people in person through the course of filming but like even people like rachel i interviewed for like three or four hours like a few years ago or kathy who i'd interviewed i think she's been on the show like five or six times because she gave updates all throughout that process like you, I've talked to and, and, you know, 
know well at this point, like it was still cool watching in the series, like those moments like that, where you're going like, oh yeah, they are like super badass. Like there's some things here that are like, I didn't realize this level to it, or I didn't realize like how smart they were. Like I already thought they were, but it's like, here's another (laughs) to it, you know, which is, which is super cool. So, um, kind of moving to like personal life. Cause like, again, this is a series, people are watching it as such, but it's all real people involved. So there's real traumas. There's real things that are being worked through. Um, I think the biggest question for me personally, as it ended was I kind of went back to this mode of like, there's a lot more stuff to do. Like there's a lot of things to happen. So what's next? Like, what are the things that you're wanting to see happen as a result of this extra exposure, as a result of the things that are already in motion in the legal system? Like, what do you want to see happen next in your personal work in advocacy with the troubled teen industry? It'd be a big jump since uh, separation of of church and state, but I want to see a child rights uh, law written. And I want to see that no matter your religion, you you can't abuse your child. Mm -hmm. Even if you are a Christian, uh, you can't use your religion to say, oh, it's okay. I want to see that. And um, my next step is trying to figure out how to do that. Um, Right now, um, I, my lawyer, uh, Rebecca Randalls is working on a, um, a law to push back, um, statute to limitations in Missouri. So that's a start. It's not yeah. what I really, really want, but, um, I, I want to see more of that going on within every state. And then I want to see federally where you can't abuse kids, no matter your religion. I think that is like the most important thing that has to happen to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Religious exemptions for me are something that I've been having little conversations here and there with a lawyer friend of mine and with just some other people who are in the advocacy space. Just, I was blown away last year. I don't know if you know this, but I was blown away last year when someone told me, cause I, I made a statement like every pastor is a mandated reporter. Like I just said that. And I said, yeah. cause I, cause I thought that was the case. I thought and the same too. Yeah, there's there's like 33 states that have exemptions for clergy privilege mm-hmm. when it comes to whether or not they report. And so I literally after I got that article, I literally sent it to the lawyer. I was like, "How do we not let Fix- this happen?" You know, and mm-hmm. like how do you go about fixing this? Um because there's lots of loopholes for priests who hear things during confession. There's lots of loopholes for, you know, but, members coming confidently to or uh, confidentially to leadership. So like for me, 2024, I'm really want to wage war on those kind of clauses. Um, I don't know what that looks like yet. I haven't talked about that on the show in detail or even, you know, I I don't know what step one of that is. Um, But I know like, I'm just trying to talk to people that do, you know, much like you talking with, yeah, with the lawyers, with people who can actually connect with representatives and, and change makers in that area. Um, cause once I know the right people to call, like we can start sending some calls those ways. Yeah. Um, affecting obviously the advocacy is one thing, but there's the personal element. Like I mentioned for you, like you're talking about these leaders of this, you know, organization that's very corrupt, but they're also family. 
which is a difficult position to be in. And I know a lot of people, when I said I was doing this interview, were asking like, how do you even approach that? You know, is that something that you feel like you have figured out how to navigate in how you separate that? Is it still just a very raw thing? Like, how does that affect all of the great advocacy work that you're doing and all the awareness you're raising around this when it does hit literally so close to home? Um, I have not figured out honestly how to navigate it. I don't think I'll ever have like the answer for that. Um, I focus mainly on uh, being a mom that I never had. Mm. Um, and honestly, the advocacy um, is extremely helpful. Um, I, I know people get mad when I say this. I still do love my mom and dad. That's something that um, I think people want me to feel guilty for, but I I don't feel guilty for. Um, so I, I see um, doing the advocacy also might make it one less child. I know I'm not a child anymore, but one less child whose parents turn out like mine. And mm-hmm. um, I know that um, uh, the hardest, hardest times for me are during the holidays, uh, but uh, truly focusing on um, like my kids and like having the family that I never had is what helps me get by. There's definitely really bad days, but not as much as there used to be. So the yeah. advocacy and um, my kids are honestly what helped me. Yeah. Well, it's, it's powerful that you're reclaiming even that, like what it means to be a parent and like being able to raise your kids in a way that they feel loved and cared for. and. You know, and I don't think you need to feel, and I know I'm one person saying this, so I know there's, but I don't, you know, I think many would agree, like, you don't need to feel guilty for feeling that way. And I think that was a beautiful thing in the documentary that got highlighted was that experiencing horrific things like you have doesn't erase that desire to have that family connection, you know, and to have that relationship. And, um, and so I think you know, the old quote, there's no abnormal way to respond to an abnormal situation. Like there's no right way or wrong way to feel, you know? And I think you've put your, you've put your actions to work. Like when it comes to speaking out, like that's never been something to hold you back from speaking out about this stuff, from talking about it, from being open about it. And, um, I would ignore any of the people that say otherwise, cause I think, <laughs> I think you've done a great job in kind of asserting where you stand on these topics, um, despite the personal effects that I know it has. Um, you know, for for people who are sitting here going, I'm really angry, you know, whether that's survivors or it's people who just are finding out about this and they're going, I'm really angry. These places shouldn't exist. I'm now realizing that it's not just this one home, but now I'm Googling and I'm seeing there's homes like it all over. Maybe there's one in my community or my city okay, we're angry. What do we do now? Like, how can people best support efforts to make change? How can people actually make a difference versus just being angry and dropping a mean comment online? You know, as cathartic as that is, it's probably not the best, uh, best plan forward. Um, how can people really get involved in taking these places down? Contact your state representatives. Um, if you if you find out you live close to one of these places, I wouldn't call them like instantly and be like, oh, abuse is happening because not every place is abusive. 
Um, I only have my experiences within certain places, but I would um, keep an eye out. One of the things that happened um, with the deputy who took on our case at Circle of Hope, he said um, the moment he started investigating, he started getting calls from people throughout uh, the town saying, I saw this happen one day. Like Mm -hmm. they were watching and they always felt something was off. Um, And having outside uh, people who live in the area backing up what the students are saying, even if it's not like 100% abuse, what they see, if they see like one guy brought circle of hot chocolate and donuts and my dad brought his gun out to the gate and was like, get off my property. That is weird. And so uh, it's things like that, that also matter. Um, I would watch them closely. Um, Some places do allow donations. And so if you wanted to like donate something, you can get in and see kind of, they don't show the abuse 100% of the time, but you can see enough. Um, and so I would just say, watch, watch it, watch it closely. And if you, if you think something is going on and you have a good gut feeling, I would contact your state representatives and I would uh, let them know. And then um, there are ways you can start petitions online and um, you could start a petition, get the public aware of it as well. Basically what we did with Circle of Hope, except difference is we were students there. So we like absolutely knew 100% and could say what was going on. But I I would definitely keep an eye on them. And if you think something is suspicious, I would contact your state representatives and um, start making people aware if you can. I know there's many organizations that do work like this. They work with legislators. They're creating bills. Like they're trying to incrementally change just the idea of being able to send your kids to some of these types of places. Um, Are there any organizations or nonprofits or things that you would recommend for people to look out for, to see what kind of legislation they're trying to pass and are giving ways to really get involved practically? I know Unsilenced has a, a map of places that they have um, found. And so that's a really good tool um, to use to see if there's any in your area. And um, I think some of them do have uh, past students' um, testimonies on there as well. Um, I do know that 1111 Media, which is uh, Paris Hilton's um, organization, they are working on a federal bill it's not a um, it's not a bill to like completely change the industry or anything. That's not if that's not going to happen like tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, I I really wish it would, but even with working in Missouri, I know that's not realistic. But they are working on a bill that allows them to collect data um, from boarding schools mm-hmm. and um, te- troubled teen industry places, um, and so collecting. Collecting that data is really important, in my opinion, because we need to know. We need to have data and testimonies and things like that to be able to make a change. And within that, I think they have every every two years, um, they have to um, make come back and make changes to the legislation according to the data um, or something oh, wow. like that. I am not a legislator i've just talked with him <laughs> it's called sicka yeah um, yeah i've seen a I'm lot of people sure, post yeah right yeah i'm sure that you can go to their website and read it and um get your understanding on it 
but um, that bill is to me important. And I do feel um, anyone, so like anyone hearing this can support it and um, contact their state representative saying that they need, they feel we need this. Um, so that's a active thing people can do. Um, I think, I think those are honestly, sadly enough, the only yeah. two organizations that I'm aware of for like the troubled teen industry. Sure. But as we know, blind eyed movement within the Let Us Pray documentary, they are doing as well. So that's yeah. another place you can hit up. Yeah. Um, but I think that's all I am aware of as of yet. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, I, I was curious about Sika because I've seen you know, I'm friends now with many people who have many different opinions on all of these topics. And it sounds to me, you know, not to wade into the murky waters of, you know, all of this, but it seems to me that there are basically the two camps around that bill specifically is there's people that are extremely upset that it is an incremental approach to this, where it's like, hey, more regulation. And I understand the motive behind that because like, obviously the ideal world scenario is abolish all of it. And they all are shut down tomorrow because it's, is it ethical to do this? Like that larger conversation, I think 99.9% of people I've talked to agree that they shouldn't exist. Like this system is broken, but that's also like saying, I expect every independent fundamental Baptist church to not operate because they have major problems in this. Like, it's not going to happen. So like the next step seems to be that incremental approach of, okay, we need to collect data. We need to regulate you. And to me personally, you know, and again, I'm not an expert either. And like, I'm glad I'm not the person trying to figure all this out, but to me, regulated versus unregulated is a massive beneficial change. And I don't know why even if you're working toward like the long-term abolition of this, I don't know why you'd be against the short-term regulation as something, you know, to be there. I don't think it um, does anything for the, the independent fundamental survivors or any religious right. survivors. So I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of us are upset there, but that's like a whole nother story. Yeah, we're talking like the main, yeah. like the trouble tea industry as a whole, which yeah. which would mean for people listening, that's a good point. Is that it's not just religious home. Like this is like, I mean, there's Mormon ones like this. There's non-religious. There's just purely like you know just facilities that happen to operate this way. So yeah, this is beyond just the IFB. I was just saying like. To oh say no! I, all trouble teen homes versus like, hey, every church or every this like to call yeah. for the abolition of anything, especially a billion plus dollar industry, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But I was meaning more of the separation of church and state. We can't get a bill for a not abolishing, but we can't get a bill to regulate or get data on um, religious entities. Oh. Interesting. So we will have to go state by state because it's all regulated. So even with SICA, they would be exempt. Wow. And I think that, I think that's a lot of the um, the frustration. I don't know. I, I try to stay out of much of uh, what's going on because it's it's a lot right now. Yeah. Um, I understand the uh, hurt and the um, not wanting to support SICA, uh, but like with when. 
things went down in Missouri, um, we were promised a lot, um, very little, but a lot more than what we were given. Um, but in order to even get any bill, we had to somewhat appease others. And um, I didn't write that bill. I have no idea what went on in the room. I just know that to get Republicans on it, um, we were going to have a three strike law that had to be removed. The three strike law was if you have uh, police reports and substantiated claims three times, your school gets shut down. Well, that was taken out. So I do know that like, it's a, um, you take what you get. And at this point, especially like when we were in Missouri, I was like, there was no way we were ever going to get anything <laughs> to regulate religious schools. I'm taking it. And so um, that's why we just, we supported it because we needed it. And with SICA, I feel the same way. Um, but the only thing that I absolutely like about SICA, which or not the only thing, sorry, I worded that really weirdly. The thing I like about SICA and it's completely different than Missouri is every, I think it's two years, every two years, they bring the data in and then they work on That's either true. making the legislative stronger or what we didn't get that in Missouri. Um, so to me, that is good with SICA because you get the opportunity to make it stronger. Whereas in Missouri, they're all like, Oh no, we fixed the problem. Right. And that could be the case with SICA as well, but it is written in the bill that they're supposed to, to make be it a process, which, yeah, which, yeah. And, and which to close the loop on this, like it really is with any legislation, it is such a take what you can get situation. Even beyond legislation, any, any government related process, mm -hmm. like even you see it with the, with trials and things and court, it's like, yeah, you get what you get with sentencing and like, yeah, you wish it was more, you wish it was more severe, but like, there is that level of just working within a system that's broken itself, you know, to try to stop far more broken systems. It's, it's a mess and a nightmare, um, a lot of times, but yeah, I mean, for you personally, I know you said you stepped back a little bit from social, which I think is probably good given how, um, you know, how heavy I know the series was and, and I know there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions that are constantly firing off everywhere and doubling down for you what does life look like moving forward what does advocacy continue to look like what's your like what's your kind of personal kind of plans are you planning to kind of step back in in any kind of way is it just kind of when you can you're going to step in and and push forward on some of these topics like what's your kind of goals for the next uh next year and and onward when i say i step back i just mean social media because sure. It's drama. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I got enough of the story out there to um, not have to make videos constantly. So I, no. my advocacy is more on I'm writing a book. Um, oh, and cool. then I contact uh, people like representatives and things like that on issues that uh, need to be. Um, we're still um, agape. Uh, it was technically shut down, but they just opened up into smaller group homes. Right. Uh, which was a loophole that was put in that bill in Missouri. Um, and so we're working really hard on trying to figure out how to get that exposed um, because um, Agape will always um, be on the top of my list, whether its name is Agape or Stone of Help or Stone of Hope, whatever it is, because I have lost so many friends to the abuse that happened there. I am not going to give up. And so 
I'm, I'm slowly working on how to do that. Um, or not just me, we are slowly working on how to figure out how to expose them there. Um, but, um, I'm trying to, uh, start not my, I'm not going to be any podcast like you are. Um, but I know a lot of, um, IFB survivors feel, uh, oh, sorry. Um, IFB troubled teen survivors feel, uh, like they're, story is not getting heard. Yeah. And so I want to focus on trying to get a podcast or a YouTube channel up of getting their stories out there because um the independent fundamental baptist ideology or yeah is bad and it being in a church the families get to go home and decide whether or not they are abusing their kids the way the pastor is saying to like my parents full-heartedly what the pastor said and would use that on us as kids. And so clearly they're going to do that to the girls at Circle of Hope. And so um, all the kids at these places are um, not all these places. I'm sorry, I am wording that wrong, but the majority of these places are ran by sadistic people. And so these kids are getting sadistically tortured. Um but like the Bible says to do, um, and they can back it up with their uh, preaching. So um, to me, like um, it's, it's one thing to be a church member, a church member, uh, a cult member, in my opinion, but to be a child being sent away to one of these places, you, you're going to be abused most likely. And so um, I feel we need to get, survivors of the troubled teen industry out their stories out there a lot more because to I could not fathom what it would be like to be a normal I don't want to say normal either but a normal kid that was living a normal life that the IFB would say is worldly to be plucked from that and put into circle of hope I can't even fathom what that would be like to yeah Cause I was raised in it. Like I knew like yeah. what I was getting. These kids had no, no context. Yeah. No context. And, and um, one thing Kathy said to, or not said to me, one thing Kathy said in let us pray was um, she's not sure she even knows who she should have, would have been. I, it wasn't worded exactly like that. I have so many friends, myself included that feel the same way. And so I, I, for me speaking, my story helps healing. And so I think, getting their stories out there and helping them be heard will help um, their um, healing journey as well. But to also show that um, these aren't normal people. These aren't normal humans that are doing this. These are really um, sadistic people. And one pastor said, not all IFB churches, but if not all IFB churches, then prove us wrong because to me, it seems very well, it could be all. And yeah. um, I think it's important to show. Yeah. Well, I mean, the bar is so low, like it's such a, it is hard, you know, and I, look, I, I've talked to people who, I mean, I talked to an IFP pastor before Let Us Pray came out, just, that's just the timeline. I had nothing to do with Let Us Pray, but we were just talking mm-hmm. and talked for like an hour and he was kind of explaining how he views it and how he views abuse. And from that conversation alone, 
sounded like a good guy who happens to have been taught and believed this way. And, you know, it, it was one of those things where I appreciate the conversation and I've had a lot of, I've had, I've had maybe five or six conversations with IFB pastors at this point who have reached out privately and talked. And I appreciate that private like support, but I also am kind of like, I'd yeah. really love to see some public support. And to me, it just seems like if you believe the Bible and you believe this theology and you say it's not abusive and your version's different, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world just for your public appearance would be to separate as far as possible from these guys. And, they did that once. You know, so yeah. do yeah. it again. You do it from every other group of people you can imagine. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, and that's, that's the conversation like with Wilkerson now with, with first Baptist, it's like, you're still selling the books of the people who were abusive in the bookstore. Like you're not changing anything. You're just a little bit nicer in the way that you talk. And so, yeah, th th that conversation will go on forever about all and what percentage of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's enough to have a lot of work to do. And I appreciate you doing the work you've done. I appreciate all the stuff behind the scenes. I know you're extremely busy, you know, helping do the stuff that doesn't look great on social media. Like you're having phone calls with people and, and lawyers and these conversations. Like I know for me, like in the quietest part of my podcast, like last year, it felt like every day I'm on the phone with lawyers and having these conversations with people that no one will ever know the name of who are working through these topics. And it can be thankless work, but I appreciate you doing it. And I appreciate you coming back on and kind of updating people as far as where everything is. Hopefully uh, it doesn't take another documentary to bring us uh, back into a conversation, but uh, <laughs> we'll stay in touch. And is there anything before we close out that you want to make sure people do? I know we gave some resources and things. Anything you want to add before we close out? Um, no, I think I think we've touched everything. Perfect. Oh, actually, never mind. Uh, my parents' trial uh, was pushed back. Obviously, we we covered that. But the one thing that um, I forgot to mention was um, they were also let off their GP. Um, as monitoring bracelets right. so they are house on house arrest but they're not being monitored they're allowed to go to church now so religious exemptions all day long yes well but thank that... you so much yeah and um yeah for anybody i'll link to your social accounts and stuff so when you do post things people can follow but um thank you so much for jumping on and talking for a little bit i appreciate it thank you for having me and thank you for your work you do as well Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.